helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Now, here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, good morning and welcome to Talk Money. When you're a baby boomer or a millennial, whether you're one of those or the other, you know, that's where we are, baby boomers, millennials, it doesn't seem to matter. A common concern in most families and most with most individuals is always money. Well, this program's for you. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and I want to welcome you to Talk Money. All right, I tell you, we've got a program just backed up and a ton of information for you today answering your questions. And I want to remind you, if you've got questions for us, you can just simply go to Shoemaker Financial, talk money at shoemakerfinancial.com. That's talk money at shoemakerfinancial.com. My guest today, we're going to start with the guy that answers your questions about Medicare and Medicaid and how you need to be enrolled or when is open enrollment and all those things. He's a frequent guest. Shannon Dyson. Shannon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back, Jim. Well, you know, we get questions, Shannon, and here's the question that really prompted today's program, because I want you to lean into this and answer the question for our listener. This guy has just turned 65, and he's still working. He says, I am still working. Do I need to do anything about Medicare? Do I have to enroll? Do I have to, can I, do I cancel my coverage? I mean, he had three or four questions here. We'll kind of go through the questions with you, but his first one I am 65, turning, you know, retire, not still working, not retiring. What do I do with Medicare? It's a question that we hear all of the, all of the time because people are working past age 65 and they don't know exactly what to do when they become Medicare eligible. Uh, the short answer is you don't have to do anything. Uh, there, your circumstances will, if you tell me your circumstances and kind of let me know a little bit about what your, what your job looks like, what the benefits at your job look like, then we can kind of dive in and say, okay, this is what you should do in your situation. So there's really no blanket answer that we could say, if you're turning 65 and you're still working, this is what you should do because it's very individualized. So when you say it's individualized, lean in with me with this guy. Should he, I mean, you say he's got an HSA. He says here, he said, I have an HSA. What do I need to do about Part A? You know, the HSA, I've heard that there's some problems there if I do something. And again, I'm not sure he knows what he's when he says do something. That's a big question, something. I don't know what that means, but I understand his question because the HSA plan can be affected if he takes his, I believe, if he takes his Medicare. Yeah, if you're, if you're working, uh, you turn 65 and you're contributing to an HSA, HSA is a health savings account. Uh, and what that allows is allows you to put money from your paycheck aside pre-tax uh, to cover medical expenses. Uh, and that's something that the IRS put into place many years ago. Um, if you sign up for Part A of Medicare, which Part A of Medicare is for your hospital charges, uh, if you sign up for that and you have a health savings account, you can no longer contribute tax-free to a health savings account. Uh, so that's something that a lot of people don't realize or don't know. Uh, and many people have employers that contribute to a health savings account pre-tax for their employees. Uh, if you sign up for Part A uh, when you turn 65 and you have that, that employer can no longer contribute tax-free into your health savings account. So that's a really specialized case of someone that should not take Part A of Medicare, even though Part A of Medicare is free, it doesn't cost you anything, that would be really the, the singular reason why you would not take part so A. So because he is participating with an HSA. 
Yeah, correct. should not. Don't I'm, take okay, Part A. You do not have to, and you should not if you are contributing to that health savings account. Absolutely. Okay. I, he didn't mention whether or not he had worked for an employer of 50 employees or whatever. Is there a difference? Is there? Is there? Does Medicare have some problems with more employees, less employees? What's the stat? Yeah, there's another. Uh, there's so many issues. Well, I'm you know, sorry. When, when you get into it. But that's it, what we're trying to answer. <laughs> there really are. These questions, there's there a are a lot of, of questions. I, I tend to simplify and say, oh, it's easy. But once you, <laughs> once you look at it and see all of the questions, yeah, I mean, it does matter. If you have under 20 employees, uh, Medicare is your primary provider. Uh, and so there are insurance companies that will say, since Medicare is your primary provider and the group plan is your secondary provider under 20 employees, uh, we're going to require that you take Part A and B of Medicare. So that's under 20 Under employees. 20 employees. If yeah. you have over 20 employees, is it reversed? Over 20, yeah. Your group plan is primary. And so in, when you're over 20 employees as an employer and you work for that company, um, you, you really do have the choice. And for most people under 20 employees, you still have the choice. Uh, that A lot of the companies, uh, insurance companies that are requiring that have changed their stance on that as time has gone on. There may still be some out there that do require it. Uh, but e- most of the time, you're going to have a choice. Let me ask you this, Shannon. Is there ever a decision, again, thinking this guy's question, and he has actually two other parts to his question, but, but I, he didn't ask this, but I think it's a legitimate thought. Is there ever a reason, if, you, if you're with working for an employee, or you're an employee of, as a company, to ever decide to cancel your coverage with the employer and take Medicare? Absolutely. Yeah. And, oh, and, and okay. the reason I say absolutely is, is a lot of people just think if I'm working, I should keep my group plan. Um, when you get into the details of your group plan, as an example, if this person had a $5,000 deductible, uh, which many group plans, as they've had them for over years and years and years, in order to save money, uh, employers have had to make decisions to raise deductibles. And so if this person had a, lar- a high deductible, uh, if they were paying you know, uh, we could look at the difference of cost of Medicare and what your group plan is charging you every pay period. Uh, so we, it's basically just putting the numbers on paper and looking and seeing which is the better plan for both my the premium, the amount that I'm paying out of my pocket. But what if I go into the hospital? Mm-hmm. What 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 are what is it going to cost me annually? And we can do a side by side comparison. Uh, and see, so, you know, you work for a company that has a 5,000 deductible. You have another person that works for a company that has a 500 deductible. The answers could be completely different whether they should go on Medicare or not. So it's, a, as you said, complicated. It's complicated and very individualized. There are no blanket answers, really, when it comes to comes to Medicare. Well, I think that's important. If you just tuned in, my guest is Shannon Dyson. Of course, you're listening to The Mighty 990. This is Talk Money. The Saturday edition. We are so glad you're with us this morning. And, of course, all the conventions are over. We'll be talking a little bit about some of that coming up, too, in a few minutes. But we're answering questions right now that has been sent to us. And if you've got a question, all you simply do, send it to Shoemaker Financial. That's talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Medicare is the question. He says, I'm still working. Do I need to do anything about Medicare? Well, if we're finding out, <clears throat> excuse me, we're finding out there's a lot of things <laughs> he needs to do. So let me let me go to this part. He he says, and again, if I decide to take Medicare, question, do I need to take Medicare Part B? 
is it mandatory? Right, and the, it is not mandatory. Um, so really, it, when you're looking at Medicare A and B, as we uh, mentioned earlier, Medicare Part A, it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, it's for hospitalization. Uh, Medicare Part B does have a cost to it. So when you're looking at if I'm going to continue working uh, for my employer and I'm going to take Part A because it doesn't cost anything at all, uh, and it actually does help when you take Part A. If you go into the hospital on your group plan, Part A is going to help you with your deductible. It's going to pay some of your deductible. So there is a reason to take uh, Part A of Medicare. Uh, if Part B does have a cost to it, and it's dependent upon your income. So there's a chart that says if you make above a certain amount, you're going to pay more. Um, the, the 2020 premium is $144.50. Uh, if your household income is below $160,000, uh, so that I'm sorry, $170,000 as a as a as a family, $85,000 as a single person. Uh, so Part B doesn't really help you uh, if you have a group plan. It doesn't pay in addition to. So it's there's no really uh, benefit to having Part B if you're keeping your group plan. You're just paying an additional premium really for nothing. For nothing. Yeah. So so take that into consideration. Absolutely. If you're keeping your group plan, one thing I can say for sure, uh, if you have if you're if you're a work for an employer over 20 employees. Uh, you're staying on the group plan and you're taking Part A of Medicare, do not take Part B of Medicare because you're going to be double paying for something that will not really have benefit. Not have a benefit. Okay. Well, I I think that's so important. Shannon Dyson, 757-5757, if you've got a question for Shannon. The question is, I'm still working. Do I need to do anything about Medicare? Well, again, questions that, that I think we all have, especially when you begin to approach that magical time of retirement Coming up, we're going to talk about buying a house, and um, you've got, we got a question that came in about that, and uh, we'll get into that subject here in a few minutes with two other great guests. But I, I still want to stay with the Medicare question because the question is, and again, I guess what we're, we're saying is you kind of said if, he, if he's still working, take the Medicare Part A. Yes. In most cases, most unless cases. there's an HSA involved, take take Part A of Medicare because it's going to help if you go into the hospital. It, do, it does help you with the benefit. Then it's an individual answer to whether or not you take Medicare Part B. Right. If you take Medicare Part B, you're basically saying it's going to be better based on the numbers for me to go strictly onto Medicare. So in that point, at that point, you would take Medicare A and B. You would drop your group health plan and we'd pick up a Medicare supplement. Uh, and then you got the prescription, Part D. So there's four, well, move, that's a lot of his moving question. pieces he, there. He, said, he says, do I have to take a prescription plan at age 65? Am I required if I go A, B, do I have to do a prescription plan? So two different scenarios. If you are staying on your group plan, that means you're just going to take Part A. You do not have to have Part D prescription. Any so per, no any penalties? penalties at all as long as you have a group plan. As a matter of fact, you should get, as an employee of a company, uh, you should get a letter each year from the insurance carrier that says this counts as credible coverage for your prescription Part D. Okay. Uh, so you can know that for sure. Uh, but if, you, if you're if you taking Part A and not taking anything else, no penalty for not taking prescription coverage. Now, if you say I'm going to take Medicare A and B, so I'm getting off of my group plan completely, I'm going on to Medicare you do then have to take a prescription Part D plan, or if you don't, you will be penalized. What do you mean by penalized? How can? What are you saying penalized? Does that? Uh, he didn't ask about that. He just asked the question, and I think that's a valid question. But my question to you 
if I don't take it and I'm not taking drugs at the time, I'm, you know, and whether I may, I may have been laid off, you know, he doesn't say that. He just says I'm turning 65. I guess that's what he thought. But the point is, if he's going to make that decision to not take prescription, tell me what you mean by a penalty. Is it per year? What are you, what are you saying there? When you first become eligible, you have an open enrollment window. Once that enrollment window ends, uh, you will get a 1% penalty per month for every month that you do not have a prescription Part D plan. Even if you're not taking any prescriptions? If you're not taking any prescriptions, it doesn't matter. They, they, they are uh, requiring, and I say they, the government is requiring that you have a prescription Part D plan. If you don't, you're going to get a 1% per month. And what they, what they, how they calculate that is they take the average prescription Part D plan. So for 2020, I think it was $33.20 or something like that. Uh, let's say that you, uh, you did not take prescription Part D because you weren't taking prescriptions. Um, you missed your open enrollment window. You can't sign up until open enrollment next year. So you've got an, a guaranteed 12 months at least that you did not take it. So that's 12%. So they're going to take 12% times the $33.20 to get your penalty amount. And then once they get that amount, they're going to add that on to each month of your premium once you eventually take a plan. Uh, you could have, I've had people come into the office uh, that were 70 years old, became eligible at 65, did not take a prescription Part D plan because they weren't taking prescriptions. That's 60%. And had 60% added on to their premium at the time that they That's pretty good math. It. You notice how quick I did that, 60%? Yeah, well, you, I mean, I, you had a calculator. I did have a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have told people that. But. <laughs> I don't have a But now here's his last question. He says this is his wife's question, so he's kind of pushing this off, okay? Right. This must it. be a doozy. Well, it's a, it's a pretty <laughs> He said, in addition to Medicare, he said, I've read about Medicare supplements and Medicare Advantage. Which one of these do I want? That's a, that's an hour long show. <laughs> if you want to if you want to get into you that got about two minutes, <laughs> uh, Medicare Advantage, you'll hear about Advantage every year during the open enrollment window, which is October 15th through December the 7th. Uh, be a lot of commercials with a lot of uh Famous actors from back in the day. They're going to promote of mail. it, yeah. and it's going to say uh, you can get a plan with zero premium. You don't pay anything for medical and prescription, um, and those are Medicare Advantage policies that they are talking about. Uh, Medicare Advantage uh, has limited doctor networks, and so when you sign up for one of those plans, um, you need to make sure if that's something that you want to do that your doctor is covered in the network. Uh, and something to note about those: the, the plans are regional in nature, so if you travel. If you go out of the state or city that you live in, you're automatically out of the network. There are no networks that are nationwide with Medicare Advantage, and so everything is regional. Um, so that's a problem. And so you're going to be paying out of your pocket a lot more money if you're using an out-of-network uh, doctor. Uh, and the doctors come in and out of the network. So just because your doctor's in the network today doesn't mean your doctor will be in the network next year or next month. Uh, so that's something to think about as you're as you're looking at your choices. Okay, can I change that plan if I don't like it to two years, three years from now? Great question. So with, with that's my question. That's a great question. <laughs> so with with a med, the reason that we recommend people going to Medicare supplements when they turn sixty five is that there's no health questions asked at that time for a Medicare supplement. If you ever want to change a Medicare supplement, you have to answer health questions. Uh, but you can move from a Medicare supplement to a Medicare Advantage plan 
uh, with no health questions asked. And so I'll give an example. My grandparents uh, are now 86 years old. Uh, They started out with a supplement at age 65. Supplements increase with age every single year. And so at 82 or 83, uh, they were paying about $225 a month each. Uh, They had very limited income. And so $450 a month was a lot of money for them. They moved into a Medicare Advantage plan when my grandfather had cancer. Uh, So there's no health questions asked. He was able to move into that plan. His doctors were in the network, and it worked out fine for him. Now, they've had to make some sacrifices on doctors over the last couple of years, uh, but they're saving $450 a month, and and they have decent coverage. It's not great, but the trade-off was, I want to save $450 a month, and I'll I'll take that trade-off and have a little bit worse coverage. I got it. That's a great question. If you just tuned in, that's Shannon Dyson. He is uh, the Medicare expert at the office and uh, does a great job for us. And uh, if you'd like to talk to him personally, 757-5757. Now, here's the – I'm excited about this next because literally, guys, we're going to kind of transition, and all three of you, I want you involved. Let me introduce you to the audience at this point and let them know who's talking. This is Dane Williams. He is, of course, in our insurance division. And then, of course, we've got the famous Scott Jordan – He's here all the time, does a phenomenal job. Guys, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Jim. Thank you. I wish I was famous. Well, you know, know. Dane, just hang on, man. Got to pay my dues. Got to pay my dues. Pay your dues. There you go. The topic, though, is buying your first home. And, Dane, I want to lean in. I want to talk with you first because so many people, literally, this is the most exciting thing they're doing. They've just, in fact, the question came in and said, we've just moved to Memphis. We've always lived in an apartment. We're living in an apartment now. We're looking to buy our first home. We understand, this is their comment, it's a seller's market. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> that, that's a fact, you know. But they're excited because they're saying where they're coming from, and they didn't say the houses here are better and more affordable, and they're excited about buying their first home. Now, here's the question. Tell us some things that we should be looking for. And actually, Scott, you're going to talk about mistakes, some do's and don'ts about buying the home from a planning standpoint. But Dane, here we are. Tell us about what your side, from the insurance side, what would you tell somebody with that question? We're thinking about buying our first home. Tell us what to do and what not to do. Yeah, well, specifically with that couple, just moving to the area, you want to make sure that you've got a team of professionals that you trust. Find a realtor that knows the area well and that someone that you can empower to wave you off of things if something crazy happens because you may be moving into an area that's not going to uh, help your resale value very much. Uh, so you want to make sure that you've got someone there that is able to say, yes, I understand you love this house, but here's why you don't want it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. You actually have said to me before, too, about just making sure you're handling that financial side. Yes, yeah. Talk about what you mean by that. Well, so it, once you start looking for houses and you're you know sending each other Zillow pages back and forth and all the things, it can be intoxicating. You, you can be uh, fired up about this, this beautiful home that you've bought. And, and if you haven't gotten all of your financial ducks in a row, you may uh, get yourself in a position to where you're acting more on emotion than being uh, making wise and rational decisions there. So that's why I always encourage people, make sure you've talked to your financial advisor. Make sure you've talk to a good lender before you start going out and looking at homes because you can you can make a poor decision quickly. Well, Dane, I, uh, I can speak to that. Uh, when we bought our house uh, 14 years ago, uh, my wife would send me pictures 
uh, from the back porch looking out at the lake of a house that we did not own that she was trespassing. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so I would say that was an emotional decision for sure. Did she get yeah. arrested? She did not. She made it out okay. It's a misdemeanor. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. She's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's exactly right, though. You know, you get caught up into it. So you're saying get all the financial mind done. Well, let's lean in. Let's talk to this guy that counsels a lot of people. What to do before buying a home, and I'm really going to capture what Dane said, the financial decision, Scott, all these things that they have to do, first-time home buyers. Yeah, I think, I think what Dane said is good advice. I think what he's basically saying is seek wise counsel. And I think that, you know, this is one of the largest purchases that people make over their lifetime as their personal residence. So it's something that requires, I think, a lot of, lot of thinking and a lot of planning to do. Now, um, you know, when you're looking at homes, as Dane said, it becomes very intoxicating. You get that, uh, that those emotions start to get involved. But I think you have to step back and really look at, you know, this decision is going to affect all other parts of your financial planning as well. So it's keeping in mind that, you know, what, what is our true budget? You know, what, what can we really afford? And how is that going to affect our other long-term goals? So, you know, we're sitting down with clients planning on buying a house. We have to look at how that choice is going to affect all the other things they're trying to accomplish in their life. That makes a lot of sense. Why don't you start and give us some of those tips that you're thinking about? From that, would, You know, I'd like to kind of, I know they were looking for things that says, you know, kind of what should we be thinking? So Sure, yeah. So, you know, first of all, down payment. We're going we're gonna to need a down payment. Now, a lot of people, you know, you always hear the number thrown out, the 20% number, and that, that is a good down payment number. There's actually plans out there that you can buy a home with a lot lower down payment, some as low as 3%. But now, what you have to consider in that decision is if you're if you're not putting down 20%, you could have higher monthly costs in the form of things like uh, private mortgage insurance, and uh, possibly the interest rate may be a little higher because you're not putting down as big of a down payment. All right. So I think what you're saying is make sure you save some money. Make sure you save. You know, and I think we always encourage clients to set up some sort of you know, to, to bucket that money off and set up maybe an automatic savings plan into that or plan on putting large bonuses or, or tax return money and, and really start planning for that down payment that you're going to need. So to the bigger home. the 20, if you can get to the 20 percent level. 20 percent is ideal. Okay. At least 20 percent. Getting to that number keeps you out of that private What about the idea rate. of deciding how much house? I mean, 20 percent of what? 20 percent of a $100,000 well, house? Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying with the budget. You know, you you have to consider, you know, what what is this house going to cost me? What are, what are all these other things I'm trying to con- accomplish in life? Remember, there's no independent financial decisions. This decision is going to affect every other decision. So it's knowing, you know, not only what I what I could possibly afford, but hey, what does that do to my other plans? And what am I comfortable with leaving myself some margin to accomplish some of my other goals as well? Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. If you talk about setting something aside, down payment, you like, I like the number 20%. You talk about being mindful of your credit. Uh, Dane, you've talked about credit before, yeah. too. So how do you work with that? I mean, talk about that from that standpoint. That's a big issue for these people. They, they're both working, according to him, what they said. But the reality is they didn't mention credit. Sure. Uh, well, it can have a huge impact on what your mortgage rate that you get or what you can qualify for. Sometimes you may have the income level to support a monthly note of a certain size home, but if your credit is not in line as well, then you may not be able to qualify for the loan to be able to purchase that home. So that does have a huge impact. The other thing as it relates to credit, as you're heading into that uh, home purchase, you want to be careful that you're not making any large other purchases in relation to that. 
Uh, I've seen people that as they get close to closing, they decide, well, we're going to need furniture, so let's go yeah. out and get this. Yeah. Or, a I, new car. Or, yeah, I needed a new car because I started my new job that's helping me buy this house. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they can't qualify because the entire loan math has changed. Yeah. That's a big decision that they, they need to be sensitive to that. I appreciate you mentioning that because this is important for people going through this first idea. You know, a lot of times they do get wise counsel. And yeah. if you just tuned in, this is wise counsel. You're listening, of course, to the Mighty 990, FM 107.9 and AM 990. My guest is Shannon Dyson, and he has already talked, but he's still giving us some insight. He's going through some other things we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. Also, Scott Jordan and Dane Williams. We're talking about some tips for a first-time home buyer, and that's um, that's the biggest decision a lot of times that people make in those first 5, 10, 15 years of marriage. We've talked about setting aside a down payment. Be mindful of your credit. We'll come back. We're going to talk about a few other things, too. So stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker and Scott Jordan are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. While we're answering your questions about some tips for buying, first you're buying your first home. The question was, we've just moved into the city. We're excited. We've got new jobs. And they just simply said, tell us some things we should be looking for as far as buying our first home. And I mean, they've got combined incomes. They've got, you know, they're excited about it. Said it was affordable in Memphis. They're looking forward to settling and buying their first home. That's a, So what are some tips? And so these guys have been going through some save for down payments, start early, be mindful of your credit. And, you know, I guess it's important. We talked about, and you used the word, Dane, intoxicating. And Shannon confessed that his wife was a trespasser, stepping in the backyard, taking a picture of the lake, from, and, you know, didn't own the home. And, uh, you know, Jill, I can see Jill doing that. She may have had to have been intoxicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I doubt it. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, I can look back. I, I saved a lot of those uh, texts just to remind her. You know, we, we talk about not making emotional decisions. I mean, look at the decision, <laughs> decision that we, we made. made. Yeah, Emotional decision. <laughs> you know, but my wife did something similar. She's We were thinking about buying a house, and, and I thought, in fact, we actually bought a lot and was going to build. And next thing I know, she said, no, let's don't build here. We're going <laughs> to. <laughs> We're building over here. So, I mean, I've got to go back to the real estate, go back to the developer and see if we can, you know. So, it, you know, it gets emotional. It is an emotional decision. It is. It and is. it's a financial, one of the biggest, if not the biggest decision that people make. So I appreciate the question we've got. And if you have questions for Talk Money, just send them to Talk Money at ShoemakerFinancial.com. We'll be glad to answer your questions over the air. Talk Money at ShoemakerFinancial.com. Now, I think, Scott, you talk about, and during the break you talked about that, as Dane said, you know, build your credit, be mindful of your credit. You're saying shop for your mortgage rates. Well, I think uh, getting pre-qualified and even getting a pre-approval letter is critical in the process. You mentioned earlier we're in a seller's market. So, you know, when you're out there and in most situations today, you're probably going to be in competition buying that home. So 
having that pre-approval letter in your back pocket so that they know that you're ready to go can give you a little leverage over the other bidders in the uh, buying process. We need to make sure everybody understands that. That's going to the mortgage company right, and right. getting them to research your credit, approving you right. for for a specific amount. A yeah. specific amount. Not yeah. a house, but for a, a certain amount, $250,000, right. you know, whatever it is. And I think people think that they can do that with no problem, but sometimes it can be a serious issue, especially the house may not appraise for what you think. And all of a sudden, because you didn't get an approval letter where it, you gave you some wiggle room, you might right. say, they can right. lose that house that's that intoxicating house. Yeah. I like that. That's a great way to put it. So that's standpoint. What about a budget, Dane? Yeah, so as you're working for, you got to make sure that you are finding a house that's going to work for your family, right? Uh, if you realize, hey, i got a whole bunch of kids, I'm going to need some space here then you realize there's a certain level, a dollar amount, that you're starting with just for houses that are going to have enough bedrooms and bathrooms to accommodate your family. So once you start to work through that and you have, all right, this is about the floor of what a house that's going to meet our needs is going to cost, and the ceiling can go as high as you want it to, really. From there, you start to work backwards and say, all right, do I have the down payment that's going to allow me to buy this? Am I going to qualify for the loans? Right now, with interest rates being so low, there is a huge opportunity for for buyers as well to be able to lock in a rate for a home for a significant amount of time at an incredibly low rate. Um, when I talk to some of the advisors in the office that uh, may be a little more seasoned, a little more experienced, and uh, they, uh, they bought their first house a long, long time ago, and I hear what their interest rates were, um, this is a huge opportunity for buyers right now to be able to lock in a rate on their first home uh, at an incredibly low rate. That's a great point. Good rate. And then that helps you with your budget. That helps you allow Absolutely. you to put that budget through there. When you talk about a budget, Shannon, are, are we talking about something that says, okay, I can go through this process and, and not just, I mean, have the flexibility. I've seen people to overbuy. They didn't do that. What's well, your- one thing, too, it, it, when you're talking about budgeting is that there are more expenses that go along with homeownership other than what your mortgage and or principal interest is going to be. Uh, you're going to have that MLG and W bill here yeah. if you live in, in Memphis. You're going to have things that go wrong with the house that you're going to have to fix. And so if you are right up against what your budget just on your payment, you may want to rethink that because there are many expenses, as, as I found over the last <laughs> 15, 16 years of home ownership, that <laughs> it can get expensive. So you got to make sure that you've got money saved and put aside uh, to pay for those things. That's a, that's a great point. So we're talking about some things to do. Scott, what about some things they don't do? Well, I think, you know, not saving, you know, speaking of extra expenses, not saving for the closing costs. You know, closing costs can be anywhere from 2 to 5%, and there's sometimes the ability to roll some of that into the loan, but not a lot of people don't plan on some of those costs that are going to be associated with the closing of the home purchase as well. Uh, and I think, Shannon, I just wanted to kind of reiterate what you're saying. That is something a lot of people do not think about when they're buying a home is, you know, a lot of times when people are buying a new home, they're moving up and, you know, they don't think about now my homeowner's insurance is going to be a little more expensive. My power bill is going to be a little more expensive. Taxes are going to be a little more expensive. So you have to factor in all those additional costs that go along with owning that larger home, more square feet to repair, more things to go wrong, 
All those things that Shannon just mentioned, I think that is something that most people do not think about when they're trying to figure out what they can afford for a home purchase. Or you can do like we did, and you you buy the house because of the lake, and then you eat ramen noodles for the next 12 months. <laughs> that is the American and, you know, way, right? That's just what I you mean, do, that's right? That's what people do, yeah. Well, you know, leading up to the closing as well, it feels like every single day you've got someone that wants 300 400 oh, sure. $700 from yeah. you for an appraisal, for an inspection, inspection. for always something to where you can get $300 to death as you're heading toward closing. Well, that's a great point. So just just settling down and thinking. I appreciate what they've asked. They said, we're buying a home. We like the city. We're excited about settling down. What are some things we should do? What are some things we shouldn't do? And you guys are covering the subject extremely well because I think people take for granted a lot of things. And yet at the same time, there's always those things that are around the corner that kind of slide into them. Like, here's one that I know, and I'll ask you about it too, Scott. I think it's buying a house, and then you can put, because you kind of mentioned this all too, buying a home for today instead of one for tomorrow. Now, here's what a friend of mine, when I went through and got the counsel, his comment to me was, Jim, you're not only buying the house for you, but you need to be sure that you're buying the house for the person that you want to sell it to. Absolutely. I mean, that was big. I didn't think about that. I mean, because, you know, I mean, I just was looking at our family and what we, he said, no, you've got to make sure that it's marketable to the next family. And that's critical. But what about buying a home for today instead of tomorrow? Well, I think that that you bring up a good point because you have to start thinking about not only where you are today, how long do you plan on living in this home and what's life going to look like over that period? For example, you know, are we going to add children to the picture? Uh, What is where we're buying this home? How does that affect where they could potentially go to school and things of that nature? So just having that long-term perspective of thinking, okay, how long are we buying this house for and, and what are the changes that we're going to go through over that period and, and is this going to meet our needs for a long period of time? Well, and, and jumping into that as well, you were talking about for the next guy that's going to buy the house. Just yeah. because you've got this beautiful home that you're buying that absolutely makes sense for your family that you may not have kids for, how are you going to sell it to the next guy if they've got terrible schools in that area? Right. And that doesn't impact you today as an empty nester, but it may have a huge impact on who's going to buy the home. You know, there's two big cities right now that people are moving from urban to suburban. And we're seeing that pretty much across the board in a lot of places. Uh, that's Los Angeles and New York. But the reality is that's happening in a lot of cases where people are moving from the urban side into, because of a lot of things going on in the urban cities, but moving out to the suburbia and even to the rural part, they're willing to do the commute or they're willing to work from home. So I think that's something that somebody has to be sure that they're thinking about. And schools, you all mentioned, I think if you have kids, schools probably your number one subject matter that you put together there. But what about the, the idea behind homeowners insurance and those questions? Dana, I'm going to ask you about that. But before we do that, here's that elephant in the room for a lot of people. The Homeowners Association. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, oh, wow. Uh, I think we want to tell them, yeah. you know, be aware, find out if there is a Homeowners Association because we've had some people, Scott, that we've had to do some heavy counseling here we recently have. about we homeowners have. associations. Yes. Uh, find out if there's a homeowners association and read the document. Yeah, you absolutely want to do that. Your real estate agent can help you get the document for the home that you're looking at uh, purchasing for the association. 
and you want to be aware of any of the covenants that are in place that may be restrictive for you that you're not going to agree with. A lot of times you're going to go through and it's fairly boilerplate stuff that's not going to have a huge impact on you. But there are some things that can feel uh, pretty overwhelming. Uh, and it's like, look, I, I don't agree with this thing that's, uh, that I'm required to do for one reason or another. So make sure you understand what type of agreement you're making with that homeowners association before you buy that house. You know, it's not even a bad idea that, you know, find out who the president is. And, Absolutely. Uh, and say, can I spend 10 minutes with you? Just ask. And uh, then maybe visit a couple of neighbors. I mean, uh, Shannon, was it you that mentioned earlier that there was a homeowners association that literally uh, ended up the guy decided not to buy the house or, you know, because of the HOA? I, th- I think what what you just said is something that I bet you if you ask 10 people, uh, if they considered talking to the homeowners association president or people about the homeowners association, they won't do it. But I, I do think it's vitally important uh, to know what you're what you are stepping into because you're not buying a house to stay there for one year or two years or three years. You're buying you're a house because you want to yeah. be there, and you have to live with what's going on uh, in that in that small community of of homes. And there can be some there's crazy things that can happen. Uh, <laughs> some interesting things. <laughs> interesting things. Yeah. Well, interesting people. Scott and I <laughs> just had a long conversation with someone who literally bought a home, found out a little bit more about the HOA, has decided to. Sell the home. Sell the yeah. home. And it, you know, and there's, there's always, you know, this is a group of people. So where people involved, there can be some interesting things. You know, if I, somebody and told and me that the world would be a great place to live with <laughs> in if you didn't have to deal yep. with people. I think I said that. That was <laughs> <Yeah>. me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I told you that. That's, that's great. <laughs> but it's, it's serious. So I hope we've covered their question. Again, if you have a question for Shoemaker, you know, this, the Talk Money, send it to Talk Money at Shoemaker Financial. Dot com. We'll be glad to get it on. We hope we've answered your question about being the first-time home buyer. And there's some tips, things to do, and some mistakes. Don't do those. But I want to lean into, because the question is homeowner's insurance. That's the thing that people so often miss, I guess, just decide to say, I'm going to save money there, Dane. Yeah. They didn't mention this as a question of theirs, but I want to make sure that they know if you're a first-time home buyer. Your homeowner's insurance is important. So talk to me about what's, what you see here in the city a lot. You deal with this on a lot. Uh, you, that's what your specialty is. So homeowner's insurance. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into that as we're looking at the home buying process. And homeowner's insurance is a piece of that. So many of the other pieces in there, it is so price-driven to where you want to make sure that you're getting the lowest interest rate and that you're accumulating the lowest cost for this fee and for that fee. With homeowner's insurance, price is absolutely a piece of it, but not all policies are created equal. And this is one of the pieces that after the home transaction is complete, you still have the home insurance. So it didn't matter how much you paid for the inspector, for the closing attorney, for all of those other pieces. This homeowner's insurance is there to protect you when life happens for the duration of the time that you're in there. So you want to make sure that not only you understand what is covered in the policy and what your deductibles are, but what is not covered. And what are you potentially open to having to cover out of pocket because you decided you were going to save an extra $30, $40 a month? Well, let me ask you this. There's there's those things. I mean, we talked about the homeowners association, but let me give me some rules and homeowner policies, some things that you say this is important. Just some things that at the end of the day, every whether you're a new homeowner, new buyer, or you've bought your home, or you've had your home for 30 years and 
You're just looking at it and see, you know, the policy you bought 30 years may not be. Give me some rules. Sure. I, I think the biggest thing that we're seeing right now that is sometimes covered and sometimes not is do you have a policy that is set for full replacement cost value, or RCV? Um, what that means is whatever type of loss you experience, are they going to replace it minus your deductible? Whatever it takes to get a new couch if your couch is ruined, or if there's a fire in your kitchen, whatever it takes to replace it minus your deductible, that's what you get, or are they going to depreciate it? Uh, well, you know, your, your shingles are, are 10 years old, so that's half the life. We're going to give you 50% of that minus your deductible, Here's three grand. Go get you a twelve thousand dollar roof now. That, that's not ideal, and that's a huge, huge thing that I think a lot of people may not realize as they're buying their homeowner's insurance. Do you have something that is covering you for full replacement cost value? Because that's a very, very big deal. Let me ask you this: I know if you're trying to save money, and we've just bought the biggest investment in our life. Okay. It feels like that everybody wanted a piece of it, a piece mm-hmm. of us. And so now I'm trying to figure that out. Wouldn't I, I can sense the natural ability to just say, let me cut costs somewhere. Sure. Would, would it not, I mean, you're saying to me that full replacement cost is just to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. It, it can make a very big deal if you have a claim. If you don't have a claim then you know, you're fine, right? But do any of us get to predict when life is going to happen no, to you? No. Uh, when the tornado is going to come, when the fire is going to come? Ideally, we'd all say never, right? But you don't know. And do you have the funds on hand or are you completely cash-strapped after making the biggest purchase of your life? Yeah, I just had a friend of mine that uh, we were talking recently and uh, we had to replace our roof. I replaced mine about two years ago, full replacement cost. Thank you for your guidance. And uh, the other did not. He had uh, depreciation. And he was comparing the difference, and he was moaning and groaning. So, I mean, I didn't feel too sorry for him. I said, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the point is, I mean, that's such an important thing when you do have to rehab, you do have a loss. Nobody wants to have a loss, but having lived through a fire and then now a roof and some other things, those are important. Is that the same thing as direct physical loss? Is that what you're talking about? Well, so that's what determines when the insurance is going to pay, right? Uh, It's something to where you have to clearly see this thing is wrong with my property at this point. If it's something to where it's not visible, we don't know if there is loss or it's not something, it's a, a tangible loss. I can see that the shingles are torn or something like that, but you say, well, this may be worthless because the color is no longer in favor or something like that. That's not a direct physical loss. It's indirect, right? Um, So making sure that it is something to where you can clearly see and sudden is a big thing as well. With homeowner's insurance, it's designed to where the house was fine today and now immediately thereafter something has happened, right? There is a sudden loss that occurs. Uh, Rot is something that happens over time, right? Rot doesn't, you don't have no rot today. Now we've got rot tomorrow. Uh, It's something that is uh, an overtime and that falls under a homeowner's responsibility. And if there is a damage because of that, a lot of times a homeowner's insurance company will call that neglect. And that's just normal maintenance that needs to occur. Okay. So neglect, I mean, mildew, is that covered? Is that that the same thing? Yeah. So it's going to depend on the policy. You are starting to see some different uh, insurance policies that have coverage for fungi, bacteria, and wet and dry rot. But the vast majority of a standard home policy is not going to provide that because it happens over time. Okay, so that goes back to that direct. One day it was okay, and the next day it's sudden not. loss. Yeah. Okay. What about contents? Does my homeowner's policy cover? I mean, I know some people, you know, say, "Well, here's my hundred. You know, I have forty-five thousand dollars homeowners coverage for content." 
and then they find out that this was not covered and this was not. It's $45,000, but they didn't get it all. They didn't get all of it. So tell us how to make, manage that. Yeah, that's another thing. Again, replacement cost. You want to make sure it's not getting depreciated. But within whatever your contents level is, there's usually caps for certain items, for electronics, for jewelry, for furs, for firearms. So understanding your policy and what the limits are and making sure that your insurance agent knows what it is that you have and what your collections and and what your concerns are so that they can make any adjustments to your policy. If you have tens of thousands of dollars of firearms or jewelry, you want to make sure that your agent knows so that they can make sure that you have the coverage you need so that if there's a loss, you actually are covered. All right. I guess you've led me into this question, and I, and I, and I feel like that this is important for our listeners to understand. You, you talk about it's pretty technical to make sure you're going through all these details and some of these coverage rules and things like that. So what can a homeowner reasonably be expected to know, okay, to know when it relates to their policy and what type of things they should, in other words, I, for everybody listening, what do you, what would you want them to know, and what would you want them to lean on you to know? Do you understand my question? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's so important because, and again, I would want everybody listening to know that, yeah, wake up, smell the roses, pay attention, take some responsibility, but have an agent that you can lead in to get. The other part of the question. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. So I think the biggest and most important thing for someone to know is what your deductible is. Because if you do have a loss, that's the piece that you are financially obligated to as the policyholder. Uh, After that, the insurance company steps in. And then from there, you start to get into a lot of nuance. Is this covered? Is that covered? And having a good relationship with your agent is an incredibly important thing because you want to be able to lean on them for counsel. Don't just view your agent as a salesperson because if you did, then then you didn't get a great agent, right? You want to make sure they're able to counsel you in this as well. Okay. I appreciate you saying that. That's critical. That's not the person you're shopping price with. No. Uh, so with us, so we're an insurance broker. We, we represent several different companies. Uh, price is important, but you want to make sure that if we're looking at a lot of different companies, we're going to get a good feel for price. Having someone that is an advisor to speak into your life and say, if you do this, here's the thing that happens if you have a loss. Having someone that can provide pushback. Yes, this would save you $20 a year, but here's why you don't want to do that. Empower that insurance person to be an advisor for you, to, to speak truth in your life and tell you, no, you, you don't need that, or you, you absolutely do need this feature, and here's why. You know, that, uh, guys, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, you, you talk about, and Scott, go back to the same thing. You were talking about the largest investment in somebody's life yeah. in most cases, and it's intoxicating, and the, the, the thought that we think about how emotionally we get involved, and then we start kind of getting tight on covering it, and it's the biggest investment that we should be paying, you know, outside of the person's life, uh, you know, or their physical ability to earn an income, that would be life insurance, disability insurance. The property and casualty side of a person's things that we do are just critical. And and Shannon, and you guys have talked about this, and, and Scott, you've talked about it, but Dan, you've done a great job of helping us understand that. Is there anything when you talk about whether it's this direct physical loss or something that you see people just absolutely are not getting. They're just they're just missing it. It's just not, you know what I mean? It's just not on their radar screen and you have to bring it to their attention. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things we're starting to see if people have been in their home for a while is their home may not be insured for the right amount. Um, oftentimes you will base, oh, well, I need to insure my home for what I would buy or sell it for. 
and that's your market value. You guys would, the realtor would be the expert on a home's market value, right? Um, but that's not what it necessarily needs to be insured for because it needs to be insured for what the rebuild cost is. Um, that can vary a lot. Your market value is impacted by location, by schools, by a lot of things. But that doesn't change the cost of the wood or the shingles or the tile or anything that went into building that home. So if you've got someone that's been in their home for a good long while, they may be way overinsured or underinsured. And, and talking to a good insurance broker that can tell you what your home needs to be insured at at this point is a great place to be. So do you get pushback on that? Absolutely. No, I, I have folks that uh, maybe they live in not the most desirable neighborhood in their city anymore. And they say, no, my home's only worth this. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a 4,000 square foot house. Like it's going to take a lot of wood and shingles and whatnot to rebuild to replace it. it. Yes. Right. Um, regardless of where it's located. Well, and you get those flyers in the mail that say your home insurance should be about $750, which doesn't take into account a lot of things that you may have upgraded within your home. And they have no idea what's inside your home, nor is that price that they sent you on the flyer likely something you can even buy from that person. Yeah. Last thing, what would you tell people just listening to you? Shane, you know, Dane, tell me, what would you say to them? Well, I think you want to work with a good insurance broker. Give us a call. We'd love to do an evaluation for you and make sure that your policy fits your needs and represents your family well. Scott? Plan well. I want to put in a plug for Dane. We do this with all our financial planning clients. That's a critical area of planning, that risk management. Talk with somebody. Make sure you know what you have. Shannon, you covered Medicare, man. Yeah, going back to that, uh, open enrollment coming up October the 15th. Um, you won't miss it, I promise. You will see uh, <laughs> commercials and, and get mailers. But just if you have questions, reach out. We can help you through that process. Wow, that's great, guys. Thanks so much for today. Thank you, Dane. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to KWAM, the mighty 990, FM 107.9 and AM 990. My guest, Shannon Dyson, Dane Williams. And Scott Jordan, we've just had a great conversation. We've answered your questions. If you got questions for us, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. If you'd like to talk to one of these guys, 757-5757, area code 901-757-5757. Next week, my guest, David Ronchester, we're going to answer your questions about what you should be doing before you retire. And that's going to be a great conversation. Also, Steve Anderson, behavior bias when it comes to investing. And I've got a great guest, Jamie Fish. He's going to talk about COVID-19 and the family. That's Saturday at 10 a.m. right here on KWAM 990, the mighty 990, FM 107.9. We're here every week helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large-cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Financial professionals do not provide specific tax, legal, or mortgage advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax, legal advisor and or mortgage person regarding your own specific tax or legal or mortgage situation. 
Jim Shoemaker and Scott Jordan are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Secure and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.